Justin Estrada needs no introduction. However, I do know that uh, for a significant number of you who have uh, come to the church in the last three years, you may not have met Justin uh, or his wife Laura. So I'll give you just a little introduction. Uh, Justin Estrada grew up in this church, and as did his wife Laura. Laura is the the daughter of Kathy McKinney. I wrote that down so I didn't say Kathy Whitehurst. And um, Justin is the son of Kim and Manny Estrada. Justin's been away at seminary for the last three years at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and he excelled there and, in fact, has been accepted into Oxford University over in England to uh, pursue his Ph.D. in Old Testament and Ancient Near Eastern Studies. There may be a more technical name that Justin can can give for you in that regard. Uh, he and Laura will be leaving uh, for Oxford um, in the next few weeks, and so we wanted to give him an opportunity to come and open God's Word with us to encourage us and also uh, give us the opportunity to be an encouragement to him. So, uh, Justin, I want to welcome you, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you open God's Word. And Justin is also going to give a little bit of an overview during the um, during the, the informational uh, meeting portion after after we eat lunch together. So, Justin, welcome. Morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be back at Westminster uh, once again. When I first uh, spoke with Pastor Holland and he extended the opportunity to preach, not only was I rejoiced, but I had this inclination that since last time I preached on an Old Testament text, this time I would preach on a new, lest you think I'm a one-trick pony. And since I preached about a chapter, Genesis 4, this time I would preach two sentences or two verses so we can span the spectrum here and go to the other side. And for that, our passage is Ephesians 4. Verses 26 through 27. That's Ephesians 4, verses 26 through 27. Through the reading of God's Word. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun set on your anger. Do not give a place to the devil. This ends the reading of God's infallible word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is rich and powerful, inspired by your spirit for the declaration of truth that you are the God of the universe who has sent his son Christ to die for us. Lord, individual words hold meaning and they hold truth about you that we will never know. But as we expound and we study and we explore just these two verses, may the riches and the glory that lies within touch our heart. And may we be changed forevermore through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, if you will, take a few moments with me and harken back to the golden era of cartoons. Now, yeah, you're in the right building where this is not a children's sermon. I said cartoons. But I'm not talking about the present shallow cartoons of today. I know I'm a little biased. I'm a little older. But I'm talking about the good era, the good times. For me, it was Ninja Turtles. Uh, but for most of us, it was Hanna-Barbera, Warner Brothers. These cartoons that were so good that when Bugs Bunny played his practical jokes, he had an orchestra accompanying him. And he was worthy of it. Or when Yogi Bear was snatching up picnic baskets, you knew that there was something special about him. It wasn't just a job to him, it was a calling. And then, of course, there was this other side of the cartoon. There was the Elmer Fudd, who was always frustrated and angry at the antics of Bugs Bunny, and it was was this close to catching him, but to never succeed. And then, of course, you had Daffy Duck, who was so angry, he spit out words that were incomprehensible. And, of course, they go on and on. The wily coyotes always foiled by the roadrunners and the like. And so, as you probably could pick out from what I've just said, something always really stuck out to me about these cartoons. And it was how angry they could get, and not just how angry they could get, how that frustration manifested itself. So for a few examples, like Fred Flintstone. In the final credits, if you remember, of the Flintstones, he goes to take a glass of milk out, and as he's outside, he also takes the cat. But the cat jumps back into the window, the saber-toothed tiger, and so if Fred's outside, he closes the door, and you see Fred pounding on the front door, screaming his wife's name. Or, of course, with uh, Dennis the Menace and Mr. Wilson, and Dennis the Menace chicanery all the time, pulling pranks, doing things he shouldn't, and somehow Mr. Wilson was always caught up in the middle, and at the end of the episode, it was predictable. He'd blow his top, and he'd explode on Dennis the Menace, and it would be utter chaos. And so as you can see, these characters that got angry, but when you watched, when you watched Fred Flintstone, or Dennis the Menace, or even Daffy Duck and the like, sometimes something resonated within us. You almost felt bad for these characters. You felt something for them, because we, like them, know what it is to be angry. Particularly, we know what it is to be angry when we are unjustly wrong. As we can make a case, sometimes this happened even at the hands of Bugs Bunny. And this is the crux of our passage today. Paul has just used the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians to elaborate on the eternal purposes of God fulfilled through Christ in the church. And now he turns to the practical consequences of how this eternal purpose works itself out in the life of the body. That people that he has bought for himself and placed new garments on. So regardless of whether or not Paul is writing to a particular church in Asia Minor or to a number of churches with this letter so it can be circulated around, regardless, he's writing to the people of God who have been purchased by Christ's blood. And as we see here in Ephesians 4, 26-27, he levels four imperatives about the subject of anger. And he does so so that the Christian, Christian community, in order to properly understand it, so that they might not disrupt this unity of the body. So since Paul employs these four imperatives, lest I superimpose my own structure on the text, we'll use these commands as the four points of our sermon. The first is, be angry. The second, don't sin. The third, don't let the sun set on your anger. And finally and fourthly, don't give an opportunity to the devil. 
Paul begins verse 26 by quoting a Davidic psalm. You might recall Psalm 4.4, which reads, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Now, there are a few technical things you've got to get out of the way first. And so that Hebrew word here for be angry, ragaz, is actually more closely translated to tremble or to quake. It's a sense of awe that David is imparting upon his audience. They should quake, they should fear in the sight of the holy God. But Paul here is taking this text and he's kind of using it in a different sense. He's taking that text, that word, more closely related to the Septuagint translation. For those of you who are familiar, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And so he uses this word and it is more closely translated, be angry or be filled with wrath. So he's put a bit of a twist on it. There is a sense where it is actually wrathful anger. It is not just a sense of awe. And then next, when you put the text, sometimes you'll see in your translation that it is a conditional. If you are angry, then do not sin. However, this is a manipulation of the text that isn't really there. There's no conditional language. Whenever we see two imperatives placed next to each other in the Greek text, there's no conditional meaning. It is not, if you are angry, do not sin. It is an unequivocal, clear command. Be angry. So we see here, Paul gives us a direct order to be angry. Now, oftentimes this word anger is taboo in our church, in the Christian church, because many believe that written in its very definition is sin, is the subject of wrath or wrong. Being angry apparently shows a lack of self-control, intemperance. Maybe a person doesn't trust God enough to handle the good or bad things that come their way. Sadly, this is biblically incorrect. And I think this misconception results from the difficulty in feeling proper wrath and actually harnessing it well, harnessing it the biblical way. Nonetheless, as you can probably pick out, this is not an issue of anger. It's an issue of control. Now we'll examine our next point, the issue of restraint. But for now we must recognize and understand that the Bible presents anger not only as right, but a necessary component of Christian life. And so let's look at some biblical examples. Our great God himself is shown to be very angry quite often, particularly in the Old Testament. How many examples can we point to where God is infuriated with the stubbornness, the idolatry, the moaning of the Israelites? And then, of course, we see our own Savior. Remember in Mark 3, 5, where Jesus is just utterly frustrated with the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. Their stubbornness is to see that their Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, has come. And I highly doubt that Jesus used peaceful paths and soft words to drive out the money changers and the animals from the temple. On the contrary, he was vehemently wrathful. Now these, of course, are God. These examples are us, our great and holy and just and right and perfect God. But the Bible doesn't end there because it gives us many examples of men and women throughout the history of redemption who have also manifest right and proper anger. Recall when Moses, in Exodus 11, storms from the courtroom of Pharaoh, angry at the hard-heartedness of this man who seeks to defy the living God. 
also we can think of how he was angry as he wandered through the wilderness leading a stiff-necked people who were constantly backbiting and hounding him and trying to overthrow his authority. How often does the psalmist suffer in anger as his enemies seem to lord over him? Or, of course, to the New Testament. I doubt Peter was very happy as Ananias and Sapphira and Acts came to him with a lie. And even Paul, the author of our own epistle we're studying now, tells us elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 7.11 to have a holy indignation against sin and revenge. Clearly, the Word of God provides for anger in the life of a Christian and even commands this response. So then the question becomes, what kind of anger should a Christian exhibit? What kind of anger should a Christian experience? Well, the example and words of Christ, as well as those of his apostles, demand a righteous anger positioned against sin. Proper anger never serves selfish needs or the desires of an individual, but berates and condemns sin both externally and, very importantly, internally. Righteous anger results from a true and passionate love for God and His holiness, and consequently a love for others. And when God or His people or others are treated injuriously, love demands the appropriate response. It is completely legitimate to burn against those abortion clinics that flippantly and selfishly take the lives of infants every day. As much as it is legitimate to burn against your neighbor who flippantly and sacrilegiously mocks God over his barbecue. But it doesn't end there. Because this anger must also turn inward. You must burn against your own sin. The sin that defiles the holy temple in which the Spirit dwells. Now, I believe a righteous anger remains largely absent, not completely absent, but oftentimes absent in the evangelical community because when we think of anger, it comes with the recognition of sin within ourselves. Love demands anger, and anger demands a response. And if we simply decide not to exercise anger, it allows us to ignore the perversion of iniquity in our own hearts. So you can ask yourself, when you exercise anger, are you doing so righteously? And are you doing so so not only outwardly, but inwardly? Or do you look around at sin in the world ambivalently? For to condemn it means to condemn that which dwells inside you. Paul makes this command, as we see, up front. Because to love God, to have a zeal for His holiness, demands an angry response toward that which is profane, toward that which defiles the purity of our great Lord. And so now we move to our second point. Now that we've established to be angry, Paul levels another command, a prohibition this time. Don't sin. Attached to this first imperative of to be angry is the imperative, the prohibition not to sin. And so Paul's reminding us, while you have this command to do, you also have it to be checked in a sense. It is to be checked by not sinning. As I noted earlier, often people ignore the entire concept of righteous anger because of the difficulty in maintaining its propriety and its boundaries. 
So precarious is this position of anger and so wicked the human heart that a righteous, selfless indignation against sin can quickly turn into a selfish, undisciplined desire for vindication or gratification. The Apostle Paul knows that Christians stand on the tip of a razor, or a pin, if you will, balanced on this edge, ready to fall to the left or to the right if they exercise anger carelessly and without restraint. And of course, in the greater context of the book, what it distracted not only the individual, but more importantly, the community, the body of believers. Yet how can Christians hope to maintain a righteous anger and not fall into sin? Well, clearly Christ exhibited this righteous anger without sin. But we are not Christ. And I doubt that very many of us could take in a whip to those in the temple, the animals, and, and charge out the money lenders without feeling a little improper gratification and selfish pride in our action. So allow me to make some comments, not exhaustive, but I hope thorough, on how we as Christians can exercise righteous anger without falling over this dangerous precipice on which we totter. I will say that I am indebted to Paul Bain, a uh, great previous scholar, for much of this discussion. First, a Christian must examine the origin of the anger he or she experiences. Does it arise from a love for the glory of God, for His purposes and the people of God, or from self-love, from vainglory? Clearly, anger motivated by these selfish desires and expectations only leads to sin. And second, does the anger arise suddenly or rashly? Now let's make this distinction between rash and sudden. Rash anger comes unprompted and without just cause. While a sudden anger is that immediate response that as Christians we feel toward that which is unjust, toward that which is profane against the Lord. And then third, is the anger proportionate to the offense? All sin and injustice requires a righteous, angry reaction. That is a given. But the gradation of that reaction, the proportion, should be appropriate to the offense. For instance, in the Mosaic Civil Law, there were those laws that commanded a monetary restitution for sin and wrongdoing, and there were others that called the restitution of life. They called for the capital punishment Now, the severity of the crime merited an appropriate response, despite the fact that both were sinful, and both were illegal according to the Mosaic civil law. Likewise, in our own society, we may get perturbed, and some extremely perturbed, over speeding vehicles. But despite our death and our immediate inclination to cry out the death penalty for the, those who cut you off on the highway, we should note that a ticket is more appropriate at this point. Murder demands, however, a righteous anger calling for death because the image of God has been tarnished. The image of God has been struck at. And so it demands the death penalty. So as we see, anger must be proportionate, and it must be in the proper bounds. And then fourth, how should our righteous anger manifest itself physically? All right, we've got the conceptual down, but how should it play out in the practical area of our life? Well, we see Jesus driving out the moneylenders and then the beasts with the whip. 
Should we too take up our Indiana Jones replica whips and hang outside those churches that preach a false gospel? Or outside the strip clubs, the abortion clinics? Because we wish to uphold the righteousness of God? The answer, of course, is no. As much as we might like to sometimes. Because that response is not within the compass of our calling. Moses enacted vengeance on the Israelites for idolatry, idolatry, you remember in Exodus, with the golden calf, by melting the gold down, putting it into water, and making them drink it. Now I doubt that any of us would find would like to find the idols of our friends, throw them in a blender, and force it down their throats. I don't think this is the appropriate response. On the contrary, Moses exercised that authority that he was given by God in a proper manner. He was a leader of Israel. It was his job under God to give punishment, to give justice, and to do so at the proper cost and, and weight. But for us today, we see through this that there are other authorities which should play out this justice, which should manifest the righteous anger in a practical outworking, such as our civil governments and in the church or ecclesiastical governments, our elders in elder rule church. And this prevents vigilante justice taking place, which is masked in a holy zeal. And fifth, and finally, for these practical outworkings, righteous anger should not hinder people from performing their calling, from loving others, and it should not cause others to sin. If you find your righteous anger causing any of these three things to decay, and you know that you have fallen into the trap which Paul has warned against, this analysis should aid in promoting the righteous anger and prevent Christians from falling into this pit. And so seeing this, as we examine the be angry and the prohibition, do not sin, Paul gives us another command. Do not let the sun set on your anger. Which is once again a practical application of the prohibition, don't sin. Paul, knowing the proneness of man's heart to sin, offers a third imperative to prevent the body from suffering unrighteous unity, unrighteous iniquity, and destroying the unity. Now what does this mean? Why would he give a command, don't let the sun set on your anger? Well, believe it or not, Plutarch, who was an ancient Roman historian, living a little bit after Paul in the first century AD, records this interesting uh, ceremony, or this interesting item, done by the Pythagoreans. Many of you will recognize that name, because they were a sect, a philosophical sect, that were devoted to the teachings of the pre-Socratic philosopher Pythagoras. Pythagoras. And he lived in the 6th century B.C. And they had this saying, and I quote, If betrayed into angry reviling, they made it their rule, the Pythagoreans, to shake hands before sunset. So essentially what they did is within this brotherhood, Pythagorean, if one brother offended another and there was angry resentment toward the other, it was a command within their sect to solve that dispute before the sun literally set, before the day ended. And so many commentators have taken this to mean that Paul is taking this statement and applying it literally to the church. That if we have anger, if we have this unresolved tension with one another, then we must, as a rule, settle it before the sun sets. Now perhaps this is true. 
For Paul clearly has no hesitancy throughout his letters to show that he will capture things of the world and bring them in bondage to the gospel. However, considering that Plutarch lived after Paul, after his execution in particular, and Paul is already quoted from Psalm 4.4, it doesn't seem necessary to make this immediate connection. It doesn't seem like Paul has this as his main intent. Furthermore, the practical consideration of Paul's day would also lead this to be a very difficult command to carry out. Now, the Pythagoreans lived in a close set wherever they were. But can you imagine somebody in Rome receiving a letter from somebody in Jerusalem or Asia Minor? And it angered them. How would resolution take place when that person was days away, even with the letter? Regardless, the most probable reality is that Paul is commanding the body of Christ to resolve this anger and this tension as soon as possible. Since righteous anger is so difficult to maintain, it's so difficult to restrain before it's twisted, before it's manipulated into something that it never even looked like at the beginning, Paul is giving us this practical wisdom so that something that is righteous and good at the beginning does not turn into the result and the manipulated animal of a selfish desire. Because how often do we see that something that is left untended will fester and grow into a destructive wound. Furthermore, we see that Paul's quoted in Psalm 4.4. We see more practical wisdom coming from the psalm in the sense that he says, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. How many of us knows how difficult it is to lay to go to bed at night and when something is on your heart disturbing you, some tension, anger that you have toward a brother and sister in Christ, toward another individual, how difficult is it to actually find sleep? I think we can all agree that it is not an easy task. And this is so true in our lives, because anger can morph. Something that was good at the beginning can morph so quickly. And we should also note that not only does it morph in the individual, but Paul here uses when he says, don't let the sun to um, your anger. This is a possessive pronoun that is plural, not singular. So he's not talking to a particular individual. He's talking to all parties involved. You may have handled your anger. You may not have problems sleeping at night. It may have gone off your back like water off a frog's hiney. But it might not for the other person. It takes more than one person to solve a resentment, a tension. And so Paul is giving a command to seek resolution amongst all parties involved. And noting this, we move to our final point. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. As I just noted, it is extremely difficult to harness anger. It's extremely difficult to take this emotion that we all feel and to use it properly. But, lest we think that only our own selves, or only our own sinful desires can manipulate this sin, we see from Paul's writing that the devil himself takes this opportunity to destroy and strike at the individual and the community of the body of God. We see here this word, oftentimes you might read in your translation, that it's translated as slanderers. I don't think that's correct. On the contrary, Paul uses a very unique article here with the word devil, diablos. And that word is used of Satan. 
He's naming the arch enemy of the church. And I don't see already seen this done, not only in the scripture, but in my last lesson here when I was here at Christmas. Recall, we spoke about Genesis 4, and how Cain infuriated with the sacrifice of Abel, and how his was not accepted like his brother's. He was confronted by God, and God said, Satan is knocking at the door, waiting to devour you. And so we know the end of the story. We see how anger got the best of Cain, and Satan manipulated this man who was the offspring of the first man and woman. And he took Cain, and Cain in his sin struck at Abel, the righteous man really the heir to the promises of God and so he struck a blow at the church and of course you see that God raised up a substitute instead but regardless this is a prime example of how easily the arch enemy Satan can use anger in the hearts of Cain remember Cain was from the very offspring of creation so we see here that Paul does not simply tack on verse 27 for emphasis, but to demonstrate the absolute peril that we stand in when exercising anger. We must love our fellow believers, and we must have a unity in our church. And this is not to say that we do not use anger, but the devil would like nothing more than to strike a critical blow at the heart of the church, and we must protect against this at all costs even if it means putting aside temporarily, which is a response to anger, putting aside a bitter but legitimate grievance. So in conclusion, this concept of anger, I got really interested about it. I was very curious at what other religions, other people in our culture said about it. Um, and so I looked up various models. I looked at life coaches. I looked at Buddhism's, uh, the Dalai Lama, to see what he had to say. Hinduism, some various other world religions, or those pop culture psychology. I wanted to see what they would say about anger. What they had to counsel toward being infuriated with another individual. And honestly, I'll tell you, it scared me. Because the response I found from them is a response that so often we see in the church. There were three things that I found. Let me go through it. The first was anger is inherently wrong. I mentioned that earlier. They said these other world religions, life coaches and the like, pop culture psychology, that anger in and of itself is wrong. It's bad to have anger. As a matter of fact, I even saw some that denounced anger as a result of the un unbelievable grotesque exercise of an Old Testament God against his people and other nations. They said that that indignation that God showed in the Old Testament toward his people, toward those who were not his people, had led to countless wars of religion. It had led to bigotry and hatred. And so we might as well do away with it. Because we all know the truth, that God is only love. And that's what they said. And so what are we, how are we to respond to this? Well, at the very least, it breeds a one-sided, inappropriate picture of God, His character, and His holiness. And we in the church, if we do not recognize this, then what we do is we mitigate the heinousness of sin and the horridness of the cross. Because make no mistake, the cross is horrid. When Christ hung there, it was a despicable display of sin. Not that he had committed, 
that had been laid upon him. And this sin demanded a reaction. And the reaction was Christ's death, the blameless lamb slain at the justice and wrath of God. And to say that God is only love, it's not no what love is at all. Because love is zealous for that which is love. And God is holy. And to not have this zealous response, to not recognize that anger is a legitimate response to sin in our world is to not love God. It is to misunderstand His character. It is to misunderstand your place before Him. And it is to misunderstand the heinousness of our sin, our rebellion in His sight. And it is to desecrate the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the second reaction I found was be peaceful and just avoid confrontation. The world says the proper response to injustice or anger is just to negate it, to avoid all confrontation, to avoid all tension there, and just let it go. Sticks and stones might break my bones. It's water under the bridge. No big deal. Well, at the very least, this flies in the face of reality. It devalues community. Think about that response for a second. Just to let something go like that, normally our human response is to what? Just to have no contact with that individual. But just say, oh, well, that's, that's the other thing. I just won't talk to them anymore because we know what will happen. If there's unresolved tension there, it will come out. Whether it's today, tomorrow, two years, ten years, twenty years, it doesn't matter. It will come out. And so to have this response is to say, you go your way, I'll go my way. You sit on that side of the pew, I'll sit on that side of the pew. When we're in the fellowship hall, I'll go at the end of the line and share up the front of the line. It is this response. And what is that doing? It's doing the exact opposite of what Paul has been doing this entire letter. It's devaluing the unity of the body of Christ. What does Christ purchase? It's not a body that is united. And in all practical, you know, for all practical application, 99% of the time, if you try this, it just will not work. Um, and what will end up coming out is not only a poor response for anger, but it won't be an upright, upfront confront, confrontation. On the contrary, what do we see when anger festers and grows and metamorphs into something ugly and sinful inside that has been held back and restrained? Well, it's been so long and the thing might be forgot by the other individual and so often it's not even known by the other individual we strike back but in a covert seedy manner we backbite we talk behind that individual's back we do our best when they're not looking to undermine all their best intentions all their desires and goals and it comes out killing the church before the church even knows it's struck and then finally the third thing I found was that karma will get wrongdoers in the end. Essentially, the universe will work itself out. Justice will be done. So just sit back and watch with your bag of popcorn, because it's going to be good. So you can be ready for it, because it's going to come. Now, I think this view really per- perverts our congregations now, because we do have this tendency. And there is a sense that, of course, when Christ comes back in the parousia, the second coming, when all things are placed beneath his feet and he presents creation and his people before the Lord and the judgment takes place, then yes, there is a later judgment. And everybody will be accountable for their sins before God. So there is truth in that. 
But to take this karma notion in its true sense is to ignore that God's justice is working itself out presently and imminently. And to think the opposite is completely incorrect. Furthermore, notice what it does. Notice where the focus lies. It doesn't lie on forgiving tensions. It doesn't lie on being happy. It just lies in vengeance. You want that vengeance. It's just a matter of time until you get it, until you feel gratified by it, but it's coming. And while, yes, we are to cry out for God's vengeance, because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, it is for His honor and for His glory, because He is the one that has been affronted in us. And it is not for our own retaliation. So, brothers and sisters, as I am, I ask that you take these things to heart. It's not, anger that we talk, it's not an issue that we talk about a lot, anger. And it is two verses in an entire sacred scripture. But it is something that is important and prevalent, not only in the heart of the individual, but more importantly, in the heart of the body of believers. If these feelings are inside you, I ask and I implore that you please seek that that individual that you might have tension with, that you might have anger towards, righteous or unrighteous, and you resolve it. I ask that you re-examine this anger. I'll say this. Laura pointed this out to me as we were talking this morning, so I'm indebted to her for it. But another thing that you should do when you are confronted with this anger, when it arises suddenly and properly, you should pray. You should pray that this anger is a result of the Spirit working inside of you. That it is the Spirit that is illuminating your eyes to what before salvation you couldn't see. To the truth that God is holy and that sin offends Him. And that you, as His creation, should abhor it. As His new creation with these new garments, you don't want to see them soiled. You don't want to see His body marred and tarnished. That body that Christ paid so much for. So let us turn to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the paradigm, the model, the example of this issue of anger, Lord. You have shown us in your word and in the incarnation of your word, Jesus Christ, what it is to experience a righteous, a holy anger, Lord. And we know that that anger that you had was right and just and that anger was turned at us and it was Christ that took it for us and so now as we seek to live like Christ as we are new images made like Christ as we have put on the new garment bought for us sewn with Christ's pain and sorrow Lord I pray that as we don them we don them with a desire to follow your word to know righteous anger because righteous anger results from a true love for who you are and what you have done but I pray that in our hearts it may be pure Holy Spirit keep us pure and that in the life of the church it might not fester that our community might not be destroyed by it that Holy Spirit you might you might take it away and instead replace it with love for one another and peace and harmony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.